Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org slash donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. Welcome to this podcast of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, founder of Climate One. Climate One brings together thought leaders from around the world to advance solutions to global warming. The Commonwealth Club is a nonprofit, nonpartisan forum open to the public. Join us online at commonwealthclub.org. Welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Greg Dalton, Vice President of the Club and Leader of Climate One, a new initiative bringing together leading voices to discuss solutions to global warming. Today we have a distinguished panel to discuss the Bali Roadmap on Climate Change, a framework hammered out by 187 countries at a United Nations conference in December. We'll discuss what lies ahead for those multilateral negotiations, as well as some new research about how much carbon emissions need to be cut, and what are the biggest opportunities for making those reductions. Our conversation features a senior U.S. diplomat, a prominent scientist, and a leader from the business community. Ambassador Reno Harnish is Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of State, the Bureau of Oceans and International Environmental and Scientific Affairs. He works closely with the Undersecretary for Global Affairs, Paula Dobriansky, who was the head of the U.S. delegation to the Bali Climate Conference. He is also spearheading an international meeting next month in Washington to showcase the benefits and costs of large-scale deployment of renewable technologies. Ambassador Harnish previously served as Chief of Mission in Baku, Azerbaijan, and Pristina, Kosovo. From 1999 to 2002, he was Deputy Chief of Mission in Cairo, where he was responsible for 2,400 employees and a budget of $2 billion. In the 1990s, he led U.S. policy on scientific and environmental cooperation with the newly independent states of the former Soviet Union. Now, alphabetically, Ken Caldera is a scientist at the Carnegie Institution's Department of Global Ecology at Stanford University. He is the lead author of the State of the Carbon Cycle Report, a study requested by the U.S. Congress. And he was one of two technical advisors accompanying the U.S. government delegation in the climate change negotiations in preparation for the G5 uh, summit at Glen Eagles, Scotland in 2005. He also was chosen to be a coordinating lead author of an Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, report on carbon storage in the oceans. From the 90s until 2005, he was with the Energy and Environment Directorate at the Lawrence Livermore National Lab. Diana Farrell is the director of the McKinsey Global Institute, McKinsey & Company's economic research arm. Her work has appeared in academic journals and books and on the op-ed pages of leading international publications. She's a frequent speaker at major U.S. and global conferences. 
Together with Lowell Bryan, she is the co-author of Market Unbound. Ms. Farrell was previously a McKinsey partner in Washington, D.C. office and a leader of their global financial and strategy practices. Prior to joining McKinsey, she worked with Goldman Sachs and Company in New York. So please give a warm welcome to our expert panel today. I will ask a series of opening questions, and then we'll have a conversation and work in your, your questions from the audience. Uh, Ambassador Harnish, let's start with you. What are the main elements of the Bali Roadmap, and what progress has been made since the conference there in December? Well, first of all, thank you very much uh, for inviting me here today to the capital, San Francisco, the capital of renewable energy in the United States. Uh, we, I want to leave two impressions with uh, the audience today, and one is that the United States Department of State is doing a great deal to spread clean technology around the world, and secondly, that we are, the United States government, striving for a multilateral consensus on a, a serious reduction in long-term reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. And both of these goals, we're pursuing both of these goals for uh, three objectives. That is uh, energy security, reduction of greenhouse gas impacts, and thirdly, uh, sustainable development. On the first point, I, I want to get my commercial in here, if I may. Uh, next month, uh, March 4 through 6 in Washington, we'll be holding the International Renewable Energy Conference, which follows on... Bonn 2004 and Beijing 2005, and we're going to bring, we have already agreed, um, three Nobel Prize winners to be speakers, uh, four cabinet members are going to be speakers, more than 100 ministers will come from around the world and to see how we can speed the market adoption of renewable energy. And uh, I'm very proud of this conference, and I hope that some of you have been invited already and will be participating because it is a public-private partnership. It's not merely a governmental affair. Uh, I also, hopefully during the program, will be able to talk about the Asia-Pacific Partnership, which my uh, bureau runs, and it allows uh, five nations, the United States, uh, Canada, Japan, Korea, and Australia, to ship clean technology to two other nations, China and India, which I think we'll all agree are key to resolution of the greenhouse gas problem. So in terms of Bali, the United States believes that it was a grand success. All the parties at Bali, the 13th Conference of Parties for the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, agreed to a roadmap, which we think is going to be a valuable tool for reaching a uh, new arrangement post-Kyoto, that is after 2012. And I think part of the reason that it was such a success, and we can talk about that later, I, I would say one success out of this was the roadmap. The most important part of it was the roadmap, which deals with mitigation, that is reducing greenhouse gas emissions, adaptation, that is there, inevitably there will be some climate change and nations must prepare themselves, particularly small uh, island developing states. Uh, technology, which is key to this, and I think that's, that's been a growing perception around the world, and finance, 
these were the four elements of the Bali roadmap. But part of the success with this was that the United States back in May said that we are committed to uh, long-term greenhouse gas reductions, Greg. And uh, we started a meeting of 18 countries, the so-called major economies. Uh, those are the 80% of world emissions of greenhouse gases come from these 18 parties. And uh, we've started a dialogue about long-term greenhouse gas emissions reductions, uh, national midterm plans, uh, technology, and, the, and the, the other elements of adaptation of the uh, ballet roadmap. And we've just finished one up, January 30, 31st in Honolulu. It went very well. I think we're going to be seeing some exciting things out of this process in the coming year. Thank you. Uh, Ken Caldera, the Bali roadmap, uh, one of the questions is, is, you know, what's the goal? How much reductions need, need to happen? So what does your science tell us in terms of how much carbon needs to be cut to stabilize the climate or to prevent catastrophes? Well, first I would just like to point out that science can tell us what is but can't really tell us what we need to do, although it should inform good policy. We've done a number of simulations that essentially show that each increment of CO2 release leads to another increment of warming, and this warming uh, lasts potentially for thousands of years. And so if we want to stabilize climate, essentially we need to cut CO2 emissions very close to zero. The uh, HCO2 emission heats the Earth for about several decades, and then that heat stays in the oceans and in the surface of the Earth for many hundreds and thousands of years. So, uh, you know, if we do think we are reaching thresholds like, say, losing parts of Greenland, losing the Arctic ecosystems, losing coral reefs and so on, uh, that, that we do need to be heading towards zero CO2 emissions. And, you know, there's a societal question of whether we want to take on the costs that that would involve. So the goal is zero or, or close to it? I, I think close to zero. You know, if you look at the middle-of-the-road IPCC scenarios, they have us emitting something like uh, twice as much as today, say 20 billion tons of carbon by the end of the, the century. That could be as high as 50 billion if we don't have uh, improvements in energy technologies. That maybe we can get away with emitting a, a gigaton a year or something like that, but that means maybe five percent or, or you know a small percentage of projected emissions is what we'll be able to emit later this century if we want to avoid uh, fairly large climate change. So that's a big, big test. And Diana, while uh, these multilateral processes going on, businesses are facing some decisions today, and you've done some work on efficiency. The U.S. is a less efficient user of energy than most developed countries, so what can be done on the efficiency side to get to where we need to be? Well, let me answer that in, in two ways. Uh, first is to, to pick up on what you were saying, Ken, about how we think about the cost of abating the CO2. And one of the things that we have done with our colleagues around the world is try to create, if you like, a CO2 cost curve from the least expensive, uh, most cost-effective ways to abate carbon to the most expensive uh, ways to do it and just try to map out how much 
would it cost to actually do what we need to do to get to these targets? And which targets we're shooting for is, is a debate for consideration. But consider this, at least for the U.S., the um, expected gigaton uh, carbon is about 9.7 gigatons by 2030. And most of the congressional and other targets are saying if we could at least reduce that by three uh, gigatons, we would begin to get closer to the targets. I think you're probably right. We need to do more. But let's just use that as a starting pace because that's what the discussion is. What we learn is that we can get to that three gigaton uh, at a cost of less than $50 per ton of carbon. Now, these are numbers that are hard to make sense. But the one thing that I would like to flag on this, and this is the second part of your question, um, Greg, is really around when you look at that cost – it actually isn't all cost. What you have is a large number of opportunities, up to 40% of that uh, curve, if you like, that I've described, which are actually positive uh, return. They're negative cost opportunities, and they all are associated with energy efficiency, what we like to call energy productivity, opportunities to invest in insulation in homes, in lighting in buildings, in fuel efficiency, and otherwise that are actually yielding positive returns to the economy and are currently not being captured. We estimate that we can reduce globally the um, energy demand by 135 quads of BTU. That's 150% of today's U.S. energy use simply by doing these positive return things in the economy. And so there is an overall cost that we need to consider, but an absolute no regrets move around investments in energy efficiency that we have detailed in great um, minutia in residential, commercial, industrial sectors and otherwise. And we'd say that's really the first call for action. Well, let's, let's spin that out a little bit. Are, are economics enough to get companies to pursue, to make those investments? And, and what kind of policy would be helpful or you think necessary to get companies to, to move forward? Well, let me share something on this. Uh, we uh, conduct surveys of executives uh, routinely, um, and we conducted serious, uh, recently a survey of executives on this topic of climate change. And some of the uh, results were surprising. First of all, um, 82% of executives expect some kind of regulation over the next three to five years. And what they're saying is, we get it. We're not fighting this. What we want is clear regulation. I like to say it's loud, long, and legal. It's loud, meaning we all understand it, and it's very clear to everyone. It's long-term, so we can make the kinds of investment decisions that are going to be possible only if we have a long-term horizon. And it's legal, meaning it's going to be enforceable, and there are competitors are not going to have advantage if we do it and they don't. Uh, but there's not a sense of resistance from the business community. That's the first observation. The second one is that 60% of them or, or, or more um, actually see this as a positive opportunity. They actually think if we get the, 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 the rules right, we think we can make money off of this and do it in a way that's productive. Uh, but they're holding back. They think new products, new services. They haven't done very much yet, but are generally optimistic about this. Um, so I think that, that, um, that that's the first uh, context I would set. The second one is when we go back to, uh, let me start at least with the energy efficiency uh, things that we've spent so much time on, there are a, just enormous amount of very attractive investment opportunities within that space. Uh, consider um, heat and power joint generation in across most industry sectors. 
uh, investment economics that yield 17% returns. I mean, these are really attractive opportunities for the private sector to endure. There will be others in residential sector, for example, uh, associated with heating and cooling, with uh, lighting that uh, will probably, or actually I would argue, will necessarily require some kind of standards. But if we get the standards put in place, just as California got the standards put in place 15 years ago, uh, we can achieve spectacular results. I mean, think about the California story. Um, Because of the standards that were set here, uh, California has stabilized its electricity consumption over the last 15 years. The rest of the country has increased it by 50%. We're all growing in the same country, and, um, and I don't think Californians are going without light and without heat and without uh, cooling. And so I think these are the very large opportunities that the private sector will adopt if the rules are clear. Either one. Um, Ken, anything on that? Yes. Well, I agree with Diana that both the standards uh, and certainly a price on carbon uh, is essential and, and a reliable long-term price that will allow people to invest in the appropriate technologies, that there is also a role for public uh, R&D and, and systems-level changes. For example, if we do decide to go to, say, swappable battery electric cars, you're going to need stations that are ready there to swap your battery, and, and you can't build this station unless you already have the swappable electric cars. And so there is a role for public policy. But uh, for systems level changes, but certainly both standards and a clear and increasing price on carbon emissions would be important. Um, could I just respond quickly to that? Um, I, I would absolutely underscore the need for public policy intervention. Why? Because we have noted already that uh, these are positive return opportunities, and yet people aren't going after them. Right? And so you say to yourself, well, why not? Well, there are very good reasons. Uh, in many cases, if you take, for example, the residential, there are agency problems. The landlord is not going to do certain things because he doesn't pay the cost of the utility. The tenant isn't going to do certain things because, of course, they're only going to be there a year or two, and you actually require some kind of standard or intervention to break that agency issue. Um, and so there are many places where public policy uh, will play a very important role, standards being an obvious one. Uh, however, I would say that the, the, um, the general enamorment with, um, with policy to fund the silver bullet solution um, is, I think, problematic. I think there's a lot of debate right now that all we need to do is throw money at the problem and technology will resolve this. And when we see right in front of us a very clear answer on the demand side, which is a no-regrets move, dead weight loss to the economy we can eliminate. Um, So I'm not suggesting it's either or, uh, but I do think that to the extent that we're going to have public policy intervention, it should be as much on the demand side and on the efficiency side as on the supply side. Professor Harnish? Yeah, I I just would like to take a bit of issue uh, with what Diana just said. And... uh, to speak a bit up for the continued uh, heavy investment that the United States makes in research and development. Uh, over Since 2001, we've spent something like $18 billion on research and development into clean technology. And we have programs uh, for something like $36 billion over the same time for encouraging their application in the marketplace. I'm not saying that should be the only solution. But uh, I would encourage other countries to do some of that as well. The uh, Europeans particularly are not 
doing that kind of investment in research and development. It's not going to be a silver bullet. There is no silver bullet. In fact, as we saw with the recent um, shutdown of the FutureGen project, but it does give you a range of options as we get out there and, and, and do the research. I would agree with you that it's going to be important what happens in the consideration of the climate change legislation this year. And uh, here you see uh, the Senate Bill 2191, which is uh, probably going to come up for hearings in March through May and be uh, talking about some of the very issues you've been talking about, Diana. Uh, then the House has to take this up. And then I think you're going to see a more... Um, uh, there, there's going to be more uh, readiness, less readiness to uh, take up some of these issues than there is in the Senate. But it will give a full airing to the issues that are important to business, as you say, the loud, the long... What was Legal. the third? Legal. Legal. <laughs> and... Um, and then, of course, there's the third context, which is the uh, international uh, agreement on greenhouse gas reductions. And I hope that you'll see some results produced by this um, uh, major economies process somewhere in the mid of this year, which sets out some goals for long-term greenhouse gas reductions and how we would get there through uh, medium-term national policies, through uh, uh, technology uh, cooperation, which is vitally needed, and then uh, new tools, new finance tools. Uh, we could talk about the Clean Energy Technology mm -hmm. Fund, which I think is going to play a big role. Ken, you want to jump in here? Yeah, I think there's a lack of reality about the urgency of this problem. And that, you know, I think it's fine to say we're just going to let the earth become like it was when the dinosaurs were around and, and we'll just take the environmental hit. And that's at least a coherent, intellectually defensible position. But if you actually want to address this problem, the amount of existing power plants and existing cars may be enough to start Greenland collapsing. It's likely enough to lose Arctic ecosystems, likely enough to lose coral reefs, likely enough to shift precipitation patterns, and so on. And, and you know, we hear about starting dialogues. Uh, you know, there, the you know future gen. We could we could have easily had a carbon capture and storage plant in existence today. Uh, you know that. Uh, so that if we actually want to address this problem right now, CO two is increasing more rapidly than in any of the IPCC scenarios. The emissions are greater than in any of the IPCC scenarios. Uh, China and India are together building about a coal-fired power plant every week, and uh, we, you know, that the, this idea that we're starting dialogues, et cetera, is just, uh, you know, orders of magnitude off of where we need to be. With regarding the cost of things, there are low-cost things and even positive things that we should be doing. But, you know, we shouldn't think that there's not going to be some pain and cost involved with solving this problem, that I like to cook on a gas-fired stove, and the idea that I would need to cook on an electric stove I don't like. And so that's going to be some sacrifice, as small as that one is. Economists estimate that it, solving this problem might cost 2% of GDP. Now, you can argue about that one way or the other, but... 2% of GDP is what England gave up in the early 19th century when it decided to abolish slavery. And they said, well, this slavery is wrong, 
and we're going to take a 2% hit on our GDP because we want to, as a society, do what's right. And I think that we need to come to the point of view that we're going to take a hit to our GDP and take some sacrifice because we want to pass on a sound environment to future generations. We're discussing climate change at the Commonwealth Club <laughs> with Reno Harnish, Assistant Deputy Secretary of State for Oceans, International Environment, and Science, Ken Caldera, scientist with the Carnegie Institute's Department of Global Ecology, and Diana Farrell, director of the McKinsey Global Institute. So, Ken, what you're saying is this is more urgent. We need to do more, more quickly, um, which raises a question about the multilateral process, whether these multilateral efforts are, by their nature, complex. They take a long time to negotiate, even more time to implement. Can Bali do enough quickly enough to, to get us where we need to be. Yeah, I uh, wanted to take a, a little bit of umbrage with uh, Ken's remark there because the, the goal, the clear goal by the world community, by the, uh, the conference of parties of the UNFCCC is to achieve a new, uh, a new arrangement by 2009. At the Co Copenhagen meeting 2009, we want to come up with a result. And so it's not merely a process of starting dialogues that go on endlessly. Um, the uh, issues to be resolved are, are, are serious ones and that uh, they require immediate actions. And one of the things I said earlier is this uh, the very exciting idea that we're starting to um, come to some agreement about is something called the Clean Energy Technology Fund. And the United Kingdom has made a commitment. Uh, Japan has made a commitment, $10 billion commitment at Davos by uh, Prime Minister Fukuda. And the United States has made a commitment of $2 billion. And if we can get this organized, perhaps with the help of the World Bank, uh, it's going to t start taking immediate impacts of spreading clean technology around the world. And as Ken himself said, it is... Uh, China and India, which are putting on a thousand megawatts of coal-fired power uh, every week, uh, so we do have to deal with that issue and uh, not forget about it. So the the Bali framework you're talking about is the successor to Kyoto, which was um, a voluntary uh, regime in which, frankly, most states are missing their targets, and there's little consequence to those states for missing their targets. So we have a question from our audience about whether China and India should have to submit to mandatory uh, greenhouse gas emission reductions, and you could spread that to whether everybody uh, will have to have mandatory reductions, and will there be specific targets? How much teeth will this thing really have? Well, um, I think we're, that's yet to be seen. Uh, it certainly is important that... Uh, China and India participate. It's important in the absolute practical sense of trying to uh, mitigate global climate change, but it's also uh, important, I think, domestically and politically. Uh, the uh, Kyoto Protocol, I think, went down largely to defeat on this very question. And so we, we need to bring China and India in, and the uh, achievement at Bali was that China and India, along with 
the rest of the developing world, the so-called G77 plus China, agreed to measurable, verifiable, reportable actions to mitigate climate change. And that was completely standing on head, the notion that we had going into Kyoto where they were um, given an exemption. Diana, I want to make a couple of observations, picking up on, on a few threads here. One is on, on this international collaboration issue, um, to point out that 85% of the growth in energy use over the next 15 years will be uh, the developing countries. So the notion that we don't get them in the dialogue is ludicrous. We, if we don't get them in the dialogue, we're not going to address this problem, and they, they have absolutely got to be part of the problem. Um, I'm very sympathetic, Ken, to the notion that this is urgent and we have to do it quickly, but there's a practical reality to what this is. I was mentioning earlier uh, with the other speakers, uh, there's a billion square meters of space going up in China every year. Somebody has to enforce the standards that are being put up. There are lots of construction companies involved. There's, and, and so in some reality, we, we, we have to both think at the biggest sphere, think on the other things, but do the things that we can tangibly do now. And, and, and that, that, that balance, it's not an either-or. We've got to move on all fronts right now. That's the only way we address this sort of very tangible issue. One other thing I think it's important for people to realize um, around this international aspect is everyone correctly focuses on China and India. That, that's accurate. Um, keep in mind, the Middle East is becoming a much more important energy user in the world, CO2 emitter in the world, not just an energy producer. And so we know, not only have the challenge of getting China and India on the table, we have the challenge of getting the Middle East at the table, um, because in 15 years' time, they will have the same energy use as Europe under current trajectory even though they're much smaller economies. So this is certainly a, an important international, bilateral, multilateral, difficult, but, uh, but just writing it off as won't happen fast enough is not an option. Ken? This problem can't be solved without everybody's participation, but we can start solving it unilaterally in that there's no reason the United States can't be implementing the kinds of uh, technologies that Diana is talking about right away and provide leadership for the rest of the world. I mean, if we go back to the, my analogy with the slave trade and England, that you know, England didn't wait till the United States abolished slavery before they abolished slavery. They said that England is going to do the right thing, and so the the United States can decide to actually provide leadership for the rest of the world. This problem is really tough because it's a tragedy of the commons type problem. Anybody with a lump of coal is typically, if you need the energy from that coal, you're typically better off personally burning that lump of coal and the climate damages are felt globally. And uh, treaties or, or, or some kind of international structures need to be developed that make it in everybody's self-interest to participate. And that is a really tough diplomatic challenge, but uh, that it, we can't afford to change our own energy, to wait to change our own energy system until we solve those broader challenges. Sure. I don't, I don't think anyone's arguing that we should wait uh, until we solve the broader uh, energy problems. I, I think it's not either or, it's both. And I would put up a couple of pieces of evidence. One is our negotiation last year, my shop, uh, is also the representation to the Montreal Protocol. 
And we proposed and worked closely with other nations uh, last year to uh, speed up the removal of H hydrochlorofluorocarbons from the atmosphere and uh, the, re the reduction of them. And, and that measure alone, which we've got an agreement under the Montreal Protocol, will take out also, and I'm not, just talking, I'm not talking about ozone-depleting substances, but uh, greenhouse gases, will take something like three gigatons out of the uh, atmosphere. Another thing that uh, hasn't gotten much attention so far, but which is uh, a step, and it's a practical step to, to take measures now, is the Energy Independence and Security Act. And this was passed and signed into law in December. We'll take, uh, uh, as far as we can tell, through uh, the requirement for uh, report, uh, portfolio standards for uh, biofuels and through uh, new mile per gallon uh, ratios and through new energy efficiency measure, measures with regard to lighting, residential and commercial, something like eight mega gigatons of greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere. So um, we do need to move and we do need to take steps that are practical and measurable and I hope that um, that uh, will take more, such as those two, which we have done this year. The HCFC case you mentioned is, is sounds like a step forward, though it's a little bit different in the sense that I think there were a handful of companies that make those materials, so it's a lot easier. There's a smaller number of actors that, to regulate versus billions of consumers and, and many other actors that are more, more complicated, I think, broadly. On, on, on climate change, we we have a uh, we have a question here. Uh, it sounds like the U.S. Has, do, has done some things, but there's a question about when the U.S. is going to stop dragging its heels. I think even um, some governors and some some mayors have said they wish that there was more federal action. And this is a little bit about your purview, but you're the federal government person with us today in terms of when we will see more U.S. leadership on these issues. Well. Um, in my, and certainly in, in the area of diplomacy, which is where I have my um, my uh, specialization or, or area of expertise, I can I can talk about those things. I uh, do not. I mean, it's a domestic decision by the Environmental Protection Agency, by the Administrator Johnson, as to uh, the suit by California. Uh, against the EPA and whether they can uh, regulate uh, greenhouse gases at the uh, tailpipe. And I, I'm just sorry, I can't really speculate on that. But I think, and I'm making the argument that on the world scene, that in the international scene, we've done quite a few interesting measures. The, the Bali roadmap calls a lot for, for technology transfer, and, and, and we've talked a little bit about the de developing world. What can be done to help transfer the technologies that are new in the, and even expensive in the United States, so they're even newer and even more expensive to developing countries? So we talk a little bit about technology transfer to, to get the technology in the hands of the countries that are doing the, going to be doing the most emitting. Can I, yeah, I, I just would like to say three things that we're doing. Um, one is the Asia-Pacific Partnership, which we do uh, at the Department of State along with the uh, Department of Commerce and some others, Department of Energy. We participate with these five other, these four other developed countries, Korea, Canada, Japan, and uh, Australia, to 
work in teams, and these are public-private teams. These are not just government bureaucrats. These are public-private teams to talk about the issue as it confronts uh, a Chinese power producer or a uh, Chinese aluminum smelter or uh, there are eight different areas, eight different task forces we have. And then we settle on a specific way, a specific technological solution for that problem, and we put it into being. Um, we're making quite a good progress in the aluminum area where there's quite a bit of greenhouse gas emissions uh, in terms of transfer of technology and uh, renewables and uh, a whole host of other sectors. A second thing uh, that we're doing is this new Clean Energy Technology Fund, and uh, really it's going to provide the finance to move those technologies abroad, the latest technologies abroad. As we were talking about, I think, before the show, uh, maybe even find that, uh, that the, the, these countries can leapfrog where we've been so that they, they're not stuck using the old technologies and having to graduate into the new clean technologies. And the third thing is that we're proposing a uh, trade measure along with the European Union to uh, reduce tariff and non-tariff barriers to trade in uh, clean technologies. Now, I think that you could do a whole heck of a lot more if we could get the trade and non-trade barriers out. Some people estimated about 14% more per year. So these are three measures that uh, we can use to help push that clean technology abroad. Diana? I'd make one point, which is we should not kid ourselves that all of the clean technology, whether it's on the efficiency side or on the supply side, is going to be generated as much of the technology in the past has been generated here. Given how much of the development is taking place in these other countries, in China and India, given how much innovation is taking place, given how much uh, energy in, in, in terms of brain power and otherwise is there, there will be innovations coming out of there, and we should welcome that. I think in, a deba- in the debate today, there's a fear that other countries uh, generating innovations is a threat to this country. On a problem this big, this is an opportunity uh, for the world, and I suspect that we won't be pushing out technology entirely, but we will be trading technologies throughout this, and it's a welcome development. I'd just like to point out that Today, carbon dioxide emissions are higher than they've ever been in the past, and we're building new carbon dioxide-emitting devices more rapidly than we ever have in the past. And so whatever successes there have been are really tiny compared to where we need to be. That, you know, it's cheaper to burn coal and emit the carbon dioxide to the atmosphere than to capture and store that carbon underground. And there has to be some kind of incentive to, for both people here in the United States to do that and for the Chinese to do that and to expect voluntary measures and people just trying to, uh, to do good for the general public and expect those kind of incentives to be enough to solve this problem is just unrealistic. So we really do need international treaties that make it in everybody's self-interest to participate. And, and uh, I think just the evidence of emissions is really uh, uh, evidence that of failure to date to seriously grapple with this issue. 
So let's pick up on two things in there. One was the pricing signals for carbon, and, and two was, was sort of mandatory versus voluntary. On the pricing signals for carbon, there's currently trading in Chicago and Europe, so there is some free market out there saying what's the price of carbon. How do we see that developing and so that there is a, more comprehensively a cost to burning coal and steering behavior in the direction we need to go? How are these markets going to evolve from where they are in their infancy now to be more effective and more comprehensive? I don't think that any of us could tell, answer that question right now exactly how they will evolve, and I think that's the problem in some sense, that, that what we need is uh, maybe not the perfect solution, but a solution that can get us moving in the right direction. And, and back to what I said before about business, that can get business investing against these opportunities. Uh, without that clarity, we won't get the traction, and people will just wait and see. And, and that's, as we've all been agreeing, uh, the worst possible outcome of all. Um, having said that, I think that uh, what you'll probably see is a hybrid of outcomes. You will see some carbon taxes in places, some carbon and trade systems in places, uh, some very s- severe intervention. You know, Australia has declared the end of incandescent light bulbs in the country by in a few years' time, and you know, and 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 we'll have the entire hybrid of these. And at some point, I don't think that we'll manage to a different outcome, uh, frankly. The other piece there was was sort of the mandatory versus is voluntary. Kyoto, everything has been voluntary so far. Um, to circle back to what sort of enforcement mechanisms might be part of Bali, uh, in, in, you, you mentioned trade. Uh, when countries uh, sort of break the trade rules, there's an appeals process, there's the, the WTO. Could we have some sort of mechanism, similar mechanism, in, in emissions in the carbon world where if you, know, if, if you build, you emit too much, that there's some financial or other kind of repercussions? Otherwise, we're just locked in this voluntary world where we rely on states pursuing the, the common good, which doesn't sound like it's going to get us where we need to go. Well, um, I wouldn't write off that approach to things. I mean, look at uh, what we've done for acid rain with, in our relationship with Canada. Uh, and there, that's where we started pioneering these efforts on uh, cap-and-trade type measures. Or look at the... Uh, progress we've had on uh, ozone-depleting substances and kind of the knitting together of the ozone hole. We have, it is possible through effective international action to tackle some of these problems. I I certainly do agree um, with Diana that market signals are important, and you can see that in the biofuels area where people started voluntarily looking for uh, even E15 or E10 because they found that uh, they could get it cheaper than gasoline. Uh, I presume if we can solve the, um, the distribution problems, that E85 uh, would also be something that people would seek out. So the market, the market signals are very important as well. I, I certainly agree with that. We're discussing climate change at the Commonwealth Club. Our guests are Reno Harnish, Assistant Deputy Secretary of State for Oceans, International Environment, and Science. Ken Caldera, scientist with the Carnegie Institute's Department of Global Ecology. And Diana Farrell, director of the McKinsey Global Institute. Uh, the oceans are a big part of the equation. We have a number of questions of, about the oceans, you know, whether we should... Uh, 
protect, do more to protect the Arctic. And that, Ambassador, that's part of your portfolio. Ken has written a lot about about the oceans and coined the term, I think, ocean acidification. So uh, what are the biggest threats to the oceans? Um, how will that be part of the Bali framework? And one other point is the U.S. is one of the few countries around the world that has not ratified the law of the sea. And would that ratification of the law of the sea help the U.S. Uh, address some of the ocean related issues related to climate change? On law of the sea, taking the last first, um, my outfit is certainly committed to getting ratification of law of the sea, and we've put a lot of effort into it this year and got it reported out of the uh, Senate Foreign Relations Committee 17 to 4 back in December. Uh, we're, it's going to be a long, hard slog. I think the impact on energy that people usually talk about is the increased area where you could do offshore drilling. They usually talk about new areas for oil and gas drilling. I haven't heard so much about um, using that as a way to mitigate uh, greenhouse gas uh, emissions. On the corals, we're very actively involved as well, um, although uh, what we're starting, we're, we're, we're head of the International Coral Reef Initiative uh, this year along with Mexico, and we're proposing some measures. Indonesia, just before the Bali meeting, uh, came up with some innovative ideas about protecting the corals in the, uh, the sort of diamond-shaped area above Indonesia. Uh, but... Uh, I don't think the main thrust of our policy to this point has been to focus on the oceans as, as part of the solution of greenhouse gases. Ken, your ocean expert. Again, I'm flipping back and forth here between talking as a concerned citizen and talking as a scientist. But the, the, our studies seem to indicate that the existing power plants and automobiles and other CO2-emitting devices might be enough uh, to signal the end of coral reefs, at least for a, million, a couple of million years or so. Uh, and now, you know, you can decide and, uh, that if you do an economic evaluation of the tourism industry and fishing and so on, you can decide that it's not worth protecting these environments, and it's better, better just to let them go. And again, I think that's at least an intellectually coherent Position, but what's not a coherent position is to say, well, we're going to protect these environmental assets, but we're we're only going to undertake actions that are so pitingly small that it's really going to be entirely ineffective at actually addressing the underlying issue. And so, uh, again, that I really think if we're concerned about preserving the Arctic environment, coral reefs. Greenland, things like that, that we really need to be ramping down close to zero as rapidly as possible. And it's just intellectually dishonest to say you're going to work to protect these environments and then uh, not do anything that's really effective at reducing emissions. Every region of the world is increasing its carbon dioxide emissions today. 
couple of questions here uh, that are sort of about a more bottom-up approach to solving this problem. We've been talking about multilateral institutions and governments and large corporations. One here says we're in a race against time. You represent a top-down approach. Are we, you ready for a bottom-up up approach to augment your efforts in new creative innovative ways to, uh, that we haven't thought of yet? And another one is that whose responsibility is it to teach the masses about conservation? Let me um, at least start on that. I would say for the U.S., uh, to your point, Ken, the U.S. can do something about it right now. The single biggest, most cost-effective opportunity is in the U.S. residential sector. We have larger houses than anybody else in the world. We have them less well-insulated than every other developed world. And, um, again, that's just talking about the efficiency front before you realize that we may have to do some things that are actually not pleasant and do have cost on top of it to address all this. Um, but I would say that uh, rather than vilify all of us residents, show people, say, what is it that is preventing people from making the right choices? And there is an enormous amount that can be done through the right kind of information. Most people don't know when they buy an appliance what the consequences of the uh, efficiency standard choices that they make are or not. Um, Most uh, uh, people don't have the relationship with their utility bills and otherwise to understand uh, trade-offs around switching to solar technology or otherwise. Um, and, and so that whole consumer effort aided by the Internet and aided by concerned citizens like yourselves can have a huge impact because that is the single largest opportunity worldwide is U.S. residential. Uh, after, if you group all of China industrial together, that would be bigger. But if you think of one sector, uh, it is us sitting here every time we go home and make a decision about what we're doing with our houses. Well, let's, let's see. How many people have CFLs at home? Um, how many people have solar power at home? Much, much smaller. For, for CFLs, we had about 60%, 70% of the audience. For, for solar power, we had about 5, 5%. Solar power, of course, of course, costs a lot more. Anyone else want to get in on this? Only to remark it at... Uh, the grassroots level, uh, it is hard. We, I was on another panel like this one a few days ago, and um, a lot of industry insiders, and but industry insiders who wanted to promote clean technology. Mm-hmm. And they were really quite discouraged at just what uh, Diana said, that people don't tend to know where their power comes from or what are the implications and even when they're given a choice uh, on their bill, uh, they don't tend to select the, um, I will use a clean technology uh, to produce my electricity. I guess PEPCO and, and where I come from, Washington, D.C., has that possibility. So it's, it is a difficult thing to get this information out. And I think we, we focused on the need for the utilities to get deeply involved in, in providing clear information about um, residential use. But gre- bottoms up is also... Uh, what the APP is all about. It's private companies working... That's the Asia-Pacific Asia Pacific Partnership. Uh, got a little handout for that, too. Anybody wants one after the, uh, after the show? And, uh, An ambassador who's into marketing. So. <laughs> anyway, uh, it's, again, a bottoms-up approach. Uh, companies um, uh, working with uh, individual uh, companies in China and India to 
get a specific technology that will help reduce greenhouse gases. Ken? I think it's great for individuals to do whatever they can, but this problem needs to be solved at a system level. Uh, One thing is Art Rosenfeld here in California has done a lot of great work on efficiency standards, and it's been shown that people will not buy even the most economically advantageous refrigerator because they want to spend less money out front. And so you can have regulations that require people to buy more efficient devices. Also, let's say I buy that more efficient refrigerator. If I plug it in my wall, if that's a a gas or coal-fired power plant at the other end of that wire, carbon dioxide's going to be coming out. And unless there's wind turbines or a nuclear power plant or something that's not emitting carbon dioxide, then... Uh, you know, I, I, I can't help but emit that CO2 when I plug in that refrigerator. And so we need to change the whole energy system, and that's something that can't be done at an individual level. One of the leading uh, venture capitalists in this area, the node Kosla, talks about we need, you know, breakthrough, big solutions, 60, 75% solutions, that a lot of these feel-good individual actions make our, you know, 5 or 10% solutions, and those aren't big enough to for the, the hill we, we need to climb here. Uh, along the lines of who, who's going to act, uh, make the biggest change, uh, there's a question here. Has anyone proposed controlling multinational corporation emissions instead of focusing the system on country emissions? Uh, let me just touch on that a little bit. The answer is yes. There actually is a lot of discussion about uh, individual um, uh, corporations' sort of role in all of this, including uh, directly with oil companies, indirectly with uh, the auto manufacturers in terms of their fuel efficiencies, uh, fleet, etc. Um, <clears throat> but it is really worth noting that uh, while we should pursue the industrial opportunity, and in some countries, as I mentioned, like China, that is the big uh, target because that's where most of the emissions, uh, most of the energy use and the emissions are taking place. Um, The vast majority of energy use today, counterintuitively, and certainly the uh, majority of the growth is in what I would characterize as consumer industries. It's residential, as I said. It's commercial, meaning all the retail uh, shops you like to go to that are brightly lit and very air-conditioned and so on and so forth, and transportation. Uh, particularly vehicle, uh, uh, passenger vehicles. And so um, while we should pursue the industrial opportunity and we should all happily uh, make sure that corporations are playing a critical role in this uh, through the products that they offer, the services they offer, uh, we cannot get away from the fact that this is as um, difficult as it is, going to be a behavioral change issue. And I agree with you, Ken, that it does need to be a system-wide solution where all the incentives are lined up, uh, but it will have to include the consumer. The idea that you take the consumer out of the equation, uh, I would argue, is just a false premise. And so we need to get the incentives right so that the market actually uses the power of consumer decisions to get this right as opposed to tries to work against them. And I think we've seen examples where that's worked in other industries. In, in certain industries. Ken mentioned uh, pain earlier. I'd like to come back to the, the pain question, how much pain and change is going to be involved in this. There's a question here about uh, really um, how much pain and sacrifice is going to be involved in the changes we need to make and deciding whether comfort is more important than our future. It's definitely there's a theme here that we may be on a course where we're going to wait till this gets worse and end up paying more 
and perhaps uh, overreacting or maybe there needs to be another Katrina or some crisis that, that drives this home for people because it seems so abstract and, and f- remote from people's everyday lives. So, Ken? Well, I do think there'll be pain, but it's a, really going to be a limited amount of pain. If you accept the economist estimate, which again is just a ballpark of, say, 2% of GDP, if on long time scales people expect global GDP to increase, say, 3% a year or something like that, that means that solving this problem means delaying our economic level by about a year or less than a year. And so I, I think if you said to everybody, oh, we can avoid all of these uh, environmental problems, but instead of achieving the 2000, the year 2100 level of economic growth, it's going to take us to year 2101 to reach that point. I think that people would do it. And, and, and so it will take pain, but it's not, uh, you know, the, the amounts of money that we're talking about are a tiny fraction of the health budget, maybe less than half of what the military budget is. It's a, it's a lot of money, but it's not as large as other things that we apply resources to today. And it's just a matter of applying the resources and solving the problem. And we have the techno- technological creativity and wherewithal to do it. And it's a question of organizing ourselves to get all these incentives right to actually do it. But, but we just really have to do it seriously and start on it. Yeah, I would agree with that. And our own estimates, I go back to the CO2 cost curve, would have us say, at least for the U.S. Uh, to 2030, that we can begin to address these targets that have been set, are being talked about in Congress, at about $1.1 trillion. Um, think about that. That's 15% of the $77 trillion that's going to be invested anyway. So I agree with that sense that at, at some level, this isn't a solvable problem. We're wealthy enough as a society uh, and even as a world, arguably, to solve this problem. The challenge, and let's just not um, hide underneath this because this is really important, is that it's not just a cost equally borne by everyone. It's a redistribution of rent. And whenever it comes to if everyone's going to pay, well, somehow people get over that. And arguably some of the big um, war efforts and otherwise that have generated people's, uh, mobilized people to do the right thing have had that sense of we're all in this together. Uh, A lot of the story that you hear here is some, there will be winners and there will be losers. There will be some very big losers out of this. There will be some very big winners. And that's where politics comes in. And simply to say it doesn't cost overall society very much. Um, I think misses that very important element, which is why we have the log jams. And it's at the national level, it's at the d- domestic level, at the national level, and it's, of course, as you deal with every day at the international level. Thank you. That was Diana Farrell, director of the McKinsey Global Institute. We're discussing climate change at the Commonwealth Club, and our other panelists are Reno Harnish, assistant deputy, deputy secretary of state for oceans, Environment and Science, and Ken Caldera with the Carnegie Institute's Department of Global Ecology. We have a question from the audience. We're talking about resource allocation and investment. Given that human-induced global warming is just a theory and that global warming is a national phenomena, wouldn't it be wiser to spend our limited resources on infrastructure uh, rather than expensive limitations of energy from fossil sources? Yeah. You know, I I actually think that if you do, I'm I'm somewhat in a minority among my colleagues, I actually think if you do a raw monetized cost-benefit analysis with normal discount rates that you'll decide 
that the best thing to do is just to eat the environmental damage and continue emitting CO2. And, uh, but I, I think that... Um, but I think that that analysis misses something in that, uh, you know, if the Romans had had a century or two of an industrial revolution, and here we are thousands of years later with that, without biodiversity and with a hot planet and acidified ocean and so on. And so I think that we have a responsibility to hand environmental assets on to future generations, and it's not just an economic decision. That, uh, on the other hand, I do think that applying resources to development and economic development is incredibly important. There's 30,000 people a day dying from preventable diseases, and it's important that we address that issue and not lose sight, think that climate's the only issue. But the important thing is to help people develop in a way that does not exacerbate environmental problems. We, as, as the ambassador uh, mentioned you know the idea that countries can leapfrog and and you know the eastern europe went to cell phones and didn't bother with wired telephones that we should be trying to make affordable technologies so that africa can develop around wind turbines instead of coal-fired power plants and and we really need to address these issues together I would make one other remark. Um, in the Davos discussions uh, a little while ago, um, there was a, a panel that I think was quite problematic because it teed up a discussion around why is the world, put aside infrastructure, why is the world so worried about climate change when we've got so many people dying of poverty? And shouldn't we be worried about all these people dying of poverty before we worry about what's going to happen in 2050, 200, whatever? And you know, at some level, you could say that's... Um, that's a debate that you might want to have, that the problem with that debate is that it misses the very critical link between poverty and these climate change issues. And so I think there are many um, areas where you say, if we are talking mm. about the world as a whole, then you're not going to separate out and make these very clear trade-offs between one issue and the other. And I would highlight not so much the infrastructure issue, but on the poverty issue globally. If you think about what are the world's biggest problems, uh, climate change, poverty, world health associated with poverty. Um, these are not distinct problems. These are actually tightly linked problems, and the worst uh, impact of climate change will go to Africa, which is already severely suffering from poverty and illness and otherwise. Um, so I, I'm, I'm not sympathetic to this notion of why are we focusing on this versus that. The world is a messy place. These things are very in, interlinked, and we need to be worrying about these things simultaneously. Also, we've, we've actually had human rights advocates here at the Commonwealth Club talking about places where there are droughts, leads to famine, civil war, clearly linking those things. Your ambassador and then Ken. Well, I just want to point out that gravity is a theory also. It's called the theory of gravi gravitation. And just because it's a theory doesn't mean it's not well-established and true. Ambassador? Uh, it's hard to top that. <laughs> How can I follow that? Uh, what I wanted to say, though, is that <clears throat> it need not only be some kind of a question, uh, if I were the dictator of everybody, how much would I spend on uh, poverty and how much would I spend on climate change? Because I think uh, what's happening around us is we're seeing uh, an emerging carbon price. You talked about it yourself in terms of the Chicago exchange and exchanges that exist in Europe. We're also seeing sometimes $100 a barrel oil. And these kind of things incentivize people to invest in renewable energy and clean technology and efficiency measures. Uh, the uh, 
American Council on Renewable Energy, which are our partners in the Washington International Renewable Energy Conference, estimate that we could have 635 gigawatts of uh, uh, renewable energy by 2030 uh, if uh, we followed a maximum scenario. Uh, one, that maximum scenario depends upon the right public policy, and we talked about that before, that there needs to be something, a renewal of the uh, investment tax credit and the production tax credit. But there's no reason uh, that we can't have significant supplies of clean technology uh, given just market signals. Last year, $100 billion went into renewable energy from investments. You mentioned the price of oil, and clearly the $100 barrel is, is, is makes the alternatives a lot more economic. What if it goes to 50 or 150 How is that going to change the economic drivers of, of alternatives to the fossil fuels? Um, it changes them a lot, clearly. Um, but what you find is that, uh, let me just, two, two observations on that. One is on the demand side. I think as... Um, it wasn't that long ago that we were at $12, $13 oil, and people yeah. said, if we hit $30 oil, it's a global recession, and the end of the world is coming, and that could never happen. And as oil prices have crept up, I think one of the interesting observations is just how resilient the global economy has been to this extraordinarily high income and prices. And a large part of that is explained by the fact that the world is so much wealthier, and so the energy cost is a percentage of all of sort of value add in the economy is much smaller. And, and so we have to recognize that as a general rule, oil prices have less impact overall than they used to have. Certainly, go back to the 70s, some of you would recall much, much greater impact. Um, on, the, on the viability of new energy sources, you know, each one of those things, whether you're talking about biofuels or nuclear or you name it, has a, a distinct curve. Um, but uh, what we found, again, somewhat surprising, is even at these very high oil prices, we have not had dramatic new investment, except perhaps in the recent biofuels, largely aided by policy in the, uh, of the administration, whether that is good policy or bad policy on a net energy use basis is, is a separate question. But I, I think it's just one more point that says the price signal is a critical, necessary, but not sufficient component to either the demand or the supply side at, at the stage that we're in. Ken? Paradoxically, the high price of oil has been pushing up CO2 emissions because it's been pushing people towards coal, which has more carbon emission per unit energy. I think many of us here in this room would be happy to buy an electric car if there were battery swapping stations and good electric cars available. The uh, $100 a ton CO2 tax increases gasoline prices about a dollar a gallon. And we've seen the, CO the gas prices run up, and we're not shifting to electric cars. We are getting hybrids. But we need the technologies and systems available to us and then the price drivers to push us to use those. The question of nuclear power always comes up in, in these kinds of conversations. I want to touch on that briefly before we, we do a wrap-up. Um, there's huge resistance to nuclear power, especially here in California. Please comment on the viability of nuclear in a carbon-free world. Well, I see we just have one more minute, but I, I would say we'll, that, we'll go a little bit over. that others, uh, other nations are considering these questions as we are. France has chosen to have something like 70 or 75 percent of their electric power provided by nuclear power, and 
So they have extremely low greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, Great Britain is now ha going through a public debate as to whether they should do more, um, go back into nuclear power for this very question, greenhouse gases. I think you said Fred Krupp is coming here. Mm -hmm. uh, as I understand it, he who used to oppose um, nuclear, clean nuclear power, clean, safe nuclear power, is now in favor because of this question, greenhouse gases. Many environmentalists have, have you know, switched sides on, on the nuclear question. I've basically switched on it. I, I think that um, South Africa, for example, has been developing pebble bed reactors that are intrinsically safer, that there's certainly problems in getting a proliferation-resistant fuel cycle and avoiding problems of nuclear waste and, and so on. But I, I think these problems are at least tractable, and uh, we shouldn't push technologies that could contribute uh, to solving the problem off the table. Well, it's time to, thanks, Ken, it's time to, uh, to wrap up, and we've been talking uh, loosely about the Bali roadmap, which leads to Copenhagen in 2009. So if we could ask the panel, I'd like to ask the panel to look forward to 2009. We've gone through this process. Uh, what do you think uh, the Bali roadmap will include? What should it include? Where will we be, say, two years from now as we're, we have an international framework? And um, look into your crystal ball for us as we close. Yeah, I would say that we hope to have agreement among the parties of the uh, UN Framework Convention uh, on a long-term uh, reduction, a 2050 goal. Now, I don't know where that's going to end up. The Europeans and the Japanese have urged a 50% reduction. We've said we'll take a look at that. Uh, but that will emerge, some kind of a long-term greenhouse gas reduction, which will have impact on uh, our carbon future. Uh, we'll have some tools available to us. We'll have uh, technology partnerships. We'll have new financing mechanisms. Uh, hopefully, we'll have a new trade regime uh, that allows for the more trade in environmental goods. Uh, we'll have medium-term uh, mandatory plans based on domestic law and regulation, and that includes the United States. So um, I'm quite optimistic about where we're going after Bali. Thank you, Ambassador Harnish. Dana Farrell? Um, I would just hope for two things. Uh, one is that there's clarity coming out of this. Uh, back to the issue, I think most people business included, are just committed to getting moving on this. But until there's clarity about what that roadmap looks like and what the targets are, very, very hard mm. to do. So even at the cost of it not being perfect, just clarity to get this ball rolling would be one, uh, hopefully perfect too. Uh, and the second one is uh, back to this energy efficiency issue. In, 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 in our minds, as we have explored every single option for alternative supplies that is even within a 20-year technology horizon, as we explore any um, set of other alternative choices we have, the single largest critical mass, most cost-effective thing we can do is a commitment to putting the demand side on the equation at the same level as the supply side and particularly the energy efficiency opportunities, the sheer waste that is in the system. Ken Caldera? I, I have to say that I'm a little skeptical of whether the whole UNFCCC process is ever going to lead to effective emissions reductions and that uh, that you know, there will be winners and losers, both uh, on the climate side and 
on the energy side of things, and, and there needs to be some way to bring, you know, to, to, to make it so that if somebody was going to win economically by not participating, that they turn into losers, which is going to require something like trade sanctions or, mm. or something with real teeth, and, and, and people are not going to agree to that, and so there will be real differences, and things might not be so pretty and voluntary as we might hope. And on that happy note, um, <laughs> I'd like to thank our panel, Ambassador Reno Harnish, Assistant Deputy Secretary of State for Oceans, International Environment, and Science, Ken Caldera, scientist with the Carnegie Institute's Department of Global Ecology, and Diana Farrell, Director of the McKinsey Global Institute. This meeting of the Commonwealth Club talking about global climate warming, climate change. This meeting of the Commonwealth Club and Climate One is now adjourned. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you for coming. Yeah.